0: Welcome to Tethered, where we have conversations connecting faith, community, and culture. I'm Bill Falk, one of your hosts, and I'm here with our other hosts, Sunshine and Mark. And I got a question for those of you that are listening today What book do you remember reading growing up that influenced you to see the world in a different way? I ask that question because if you have been listening to our shows, you know that a marker of our show is storytelling. We want you to hear people share their stories and we want to tell great stories. Because we believe stories shape our lives and influence culture. Today's show is about how stories shape culture. We are privileged to have as our guest Dr. Luis Marcos, author, speaker, and professor of English and scholar in residence at HBU. He has written 21 books, published over 300 articles, and given 300 speeches on topics such as C.S. Lewis, ancient Rome, apologetics, education, and much much more i've actually heard him speak in his class and other events and let me tell you his excitement and passion is contagious you are going to love hearing from him today be sure to stay tuned to the end of the show because we're going to tell you about an event where you can actually hear him speak so dr lewis marcos welcome to the show thanks for having me on Yeah. Very exciting. So I know that um, I just shared a little bit about, you know, what you've uh, uh, been able to accomplish. I think I probably could have spent the whole show (laughs) going through and and, and reading all that. But um, we're so excited to have you uh, on the show. And I did mention this uh, just a second ago, but really going into your class and and, and watching you teach and, and then hearing you speak, it's, you know, even if somebody isn't that interested in maybe even literature, you're like, you just, you really engage people, it's really phenomenal. But uh, today, we're just talking about stories, and so everybody that comes on the show, uh, we give them an opportunity to share a little bit about that story, so uh, if you wouldn't mind, just kind of tell us a little bit about you know how you got to where you are today. I mean, you know, was this a, a passion of yours growing up? I mean, how did your path of becoming a professor, author, speaker, how did, how did that happen?
1: Well, I'll tell you, my name is Marcos, and that's K-O-S, because it's actually a Greek name, right? <laughs> And all four of my grandparents were born in Greece. They came to America about the 1930s. My parents were born here. I was born here. So I always loved mythology. So mythology Mm -hmm. wasn't just my story as a Western man. It was my story because I was actually Greek. Mm. And I think probably the book that shaped me the most as a kid was the Odyssey, mm. right? The, the the joy of it, the stories. And Odysseus is such a great storyteller. And I still remember the first time I read, there's a scene where Odysseus has come back to Ithaca. He's disguised as an old beggar. And he's taken and he's shown hospitality by Eumaeus, that you know, that that prince among swineherds. <laughs> and the two of them are talking and it's getting really late and they're deciding what to do. And Eumaeus, the swineherd, says, you know, these nights are long. You know, we can either go to bed or basically we can stay up all night and tell stories. <laughs> There's plenty of time to sleep in the grave. And well. so right from then I knew that I love stories. And When I was an undergraduate, you know, a lot of undergraduates pull all-nighters, and I pulled many all-nighters, but most of them were not for writing papers. Most of them were talking to people in the dorm. I'll never forget that when I went to University of Michigan as a graduate student, I was in a graduate dorm, and we had people from all over the world there. And Mm -hmm. one of them was a friend of mine from uh, Damascus, Syria, Mm -hmm. and uh, Khaled was his name. And I remember he said to me once, Lou, at night we bless you. In the morning, we curse you. And what he meant by that was, I was an English you know, uh, a, a student, so I made sure all of my classes were in the afternoon. He was an engineer. His classes were eight in the morning. So he loved me when I kept everybody up in, you know, entertaining them, but then in the morning I imagine getting up, washing his face and saying curse, Lou, and then going there. But the idea of storytelling is so important. Uh, and my, one of my newest books is about Greek mythology. It's about telling stories because I believe that A lot of times I'll tell you, I came to the church here uh, and I told the story of the lion, the witch and the wardrobe, like a storyteller. Mm -hmm. And I always want the kids to come forward because you can see the kids, their bright eyes, their excitement. But if you really look around, all of the adults look just as excited. They may not be showing it. They may be trying to hide it, but their eyes are open with wonder. All of us, whatever age we are, love stories. And guess what? The greatest story of all is the story of Christianity. Mm -hmm. The only difference is that the story of Jesus, the incarnation, the death, the resurrection, that's a story. It's even Mm -hmm. a myth, but it so happens to be a true myth. Mm -hmm. It's a myth that really happened. And I believe, because apologetics is one of my passions as well, I believe, and many others do, that although the logical, rational, scientific, historical apologetics, that's important. I do that. I write about that. But in some ways... The most effective thing today is what's called imaginative apologetics or cultural apologetics. It's inviting young people into a story that's bigger than they are. Mm-hmm. Now, you all realize that Hollywood is only being saved now by Marvel superheroes, mm-hmm. right? There, there would be no Hollywood if it <laughs> mm-hmm. wasn't for Marvel superheroes, right? And why are people attracted so much? I think it's because we have an innate sense of that were part of a story. Hmm. And I'm going to uh, I'm gonna praise Mark Dean over here. Uh, we talk about how uh, the story of the Bible is creation, fall, and redemption. But actually, more recently, people have made it longer. It's really about creation, fall, redemption, and reconciliation. But Mark's church over here has this <laughs> wonderful painting that takes it to the final step, creation, fall, redemption, reconciliation, and glorification. Amen. And it's, it's it's an abstract work of art. That's a kind of a big thing for good evangelicals. What do we do with <laughs> abstract art? But it's an abstract work of art that reminds us that we are in the midst of this story. Hmm. And redemption has come, but we're still looking forward to reconciliation when there'll be a new heaven and earth and beyond that to glorification, when hmm. we will be like God, not God, but we will be in a way participating in the triune life of God. And that's the glorification that awaits us that's right exciting
0: that's powerful and i think you're so right on right on to think about inviting people into that story i read a book uh, a few years back about a guy who's uh, struggling with his daughter like she was not wanting to go to church and not interested in in her faith and and so the dad was talking to a pastor and and the pastor said you need to invite her into a different story good so I guess this guy was maybe well-to-do. So he thought about it. He went and uh, looked at four different places, I think maybe four places that needed orphanage, you know, an orphanage. So he went and got his family together and said, listen, here's a few places that need an orphanage. I want us to decide on what place we're going to build one. In our family, we're going to build an orphanage. Wow. And basically his daughter totally changed through that process. And the idea was how he just, it kind of invited her up into a bigger story. And so, um, yeah, I think that's so that's so so true. And, and even mentioning that glorification state, the, yeah. the end of the story, even though it's not really end, but it's, you know, a destination.
1: It's, 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 a, it's a word there that the, the Greek Orthodox use called theosis, that God became like us so we could become like him. And in mere Christianity, Lewis actually talks about that content. So sometimes it's known as deification, which is a little bit scarier sounding, (laughs) but that's what theosis means. Again, we're not going to be God, but we are going to be taken up. So see, when Christ came and became a man and died and resurrected, he didn't just do it to give us a get out of hell free card. I mean, that's important. And thank God we have that get out of hell free card. But, you know, Jesus did not become a man and live as one of us. And remember, he still has a body in heaven. He's still fully man and fully God, fully human, fully divine. He'll take us by the skin of our teeth, but he did it so that we could truly become the creatures he created us to be. Hmm. And we need, you know, I mean, why why do we think young people are going to want to go to heaven if we give them the most boring he- uh, you know image of heaven imaginable just sitting around frozen in states of worship i mean heaven has got to be dynamic heaven is more than the earth not less than the earth
2: right? i've heard bill voice bo- bo- voice that over and over mm-hmm. right thought, oh yeah
0: before yeah yeah randy alcorn i think he wrote a book oh, called, he heaven. called heaven and, and he's written
1: fiction too but that book heaven is great. yeah i read that and i thought
0: I want to go to heaven. <laughs> I never, yeah. never really thought about it, you know, yeah. the way he uh, wrote about it. I was like, wow, this is going to be amazing. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so did you always have that growing up? I mean, was that, um, were your parents influential in, in, and you having a passion for literature, um, in this kind of, uh, the idea of the story of God? I mean, was that something that kind of developed over time? Maybe when you got to college or do you, you feel like you kind of grew yeah, up. I mean it, it was
1: there and and my father is is more of a theist than a believer. He's a very good virtuous man. We're still praying for him. Uh, uh my mother's is a stronger Christian. Um and you know it's Greek orthodox. I mean the, the Greek orthodox faith if you read the divine liturgy, the mass, the gospels there. But it until I mean it's changing these days, but it's never been a very evangelical by, by which I mean literally preaching the gospel, right? It's 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 very culture based, it's very ethnic based. Now a lot of converts are actually becoming Orthodox and the Orthodox people don't know what to do with these people, right? (laughs) Because, well, you're not Greek, you're not Russian, you're not Egyptian, you're not Armenian. What the heck are you? What are you doing here? Uh, but, But anyway, it did give me a grounding though. Being Greek gave me a grounding in the stories in the whole Western tradition, and that was very, very strong and very, very powerful. And I still remember very, very important back in the '70s when Jesus of Nazareth—that was the miniseries—came out. Uh, I remember, like I said, my father's not really a strong believer, but he let us stay up late and watch that because he felt it was important. Right? This is the most important story, whether you believe it or not. And and by the way, the the, the, the new version of of Jesus of Nazareth—it's called The Chosen. It's the the the, the next best life of Christ. Yeah, it's just yeah. amazing. And, and 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 I'll mention that because the reason it's so it's called the chosen. They're in the middle of their second season and it's gonna be, I think, eight seasons long, and it's a life of Christ. But what's unique about it is that they come up with backstories for all of the disciples. Now mm-hmm. obviously it's speculation, mm-hmm. but what they do that's so powerful, and I think it's it's speaking to me, but it's speaking to a younger generation, is, you know, look, okay, Jesus did a miracle for Peter that made Peter follow. We call it the miraculous catch of fishes, right? And when we read it in the gospel, we're only getting the small story. We're like, oh, that was just a miracle. But wait a minute, you know, if that spoke to Peter, Maybe God knew, maybe Jesus did it because maybe Peter or Simon at that point was in a problem where he needed to catch a fish. So they make a whole backstory where his life is falling apart. He's been doing all And when Jesus does this miracle, it's a galvanizing moment so that Peter can say what the woman at the well says at the end of season one, here's a man who's told me everything I ever did. Mm. And so I, I think that, uh, and it's kind of interesting. Do you know who's, who's making The Chosen? It's a guy named Dallas uh, Jenkins, who's the son of Philip mm-hmm. Jenkins. Heard of that name? Mm-hmm. The Left Behind series. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah he's yeah. the son of the guy that the co-writer of the Left Behind series. Uh, this is a little bit better literature, uh, but anyway. <laughs> but still, the point is that there's an understanding that if we're going to follow Jesus, we need to understand that following Jesus means He is going to take all of the the, the loose, you know, the loose threads of our life. And weave them together into a tapestry. That's what he's doing in this show. It's so beautiful. It's so moving. If you get a chance to see it, uh, and they're doing it in a weird way. It's it's free to watch <laughs> if you want, but they also want you to pay it forward. And you can also buy the DVD when it comes out mm-hmm. and the merchandise. Um, but again, people are hungry. It yes, we need to know our doctrine. Our doctrine is like the is like my skeleton right? If right. I didn't have a skeleton, mm-hmm. I'd be a, a jellyfish, literally, mm-hmm. right? So we need to focus. They need to understand the full theology, the full meaning of the Nicene Creed, but we want more than a skeleton, right? I want flesh and all that sort of... And that's what comes with the story, with the narrative of how Jesus doesn't just save us and that's the end. He saves us for something, right, right. for a fuller life, to be able to participate in the story he's doing in planet Earth and. The old earth will be destroyed, but so there will be a new earth and a new Jerusalem. It will still be a physical place. And if you want, you can read all 500 pages of Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven. It really could have been 250 pages, but Randy Alcorn is a darn good evangelical, and he is going to interpret every single verse in the Bible about heaven. And he does it, and it's beautiful. You know, I remember even in uh, some of the, I think
0: at one point in the book, he said, here's a list of questions that yep. people, you know, have. And one of them was, uh, whether be baseball in heaven. Oh, there. And you I know. remember his response was, well, why not? why not? And he said, people might say, well, somebody's going to lose. And he thought his response was what's wrong with that. Yeah. What's wrong with people just going out and playing a good game and Hey, we'll get you next time. You know, there's nothing, you know, I thought it was, uh, but, uh, yeah, it was, there was definitely a great the book.
1: joy of a game as an ended
3: yeah. itself.
0: Mm-hmm. You yeah. Know? yeah. So did you always want to become a professor?
1: I did. And, and you, you mentioned before that you sat in my class. Okay, th- this is almost a universal thing. When you ask people, why did you become an English major? And you could have asked me that when I was an undergraduate. If you ask them, you know, why did you become an engineer or businessman, or whatever? Well, you know, I want a job or this. But almost universally, if you ask them, why did you become an English major? Because I had an excellent English teacher mm. in high school, mm-hmm. well, and that's that's pretty much true about history too. But the reason I say that is because English literature is one of those things that often rises or falls on the teacher, the professor. Mm-hmm. Because if the teacher doesn't make it come alive, you're not going to do it. I mean, l- yeah. unless you just are, you know, have it in your bones. And I did have a very good English teacher uh, in high school. Uh, most of my I went to all secular schools. Most of my mentors were actually secular Jews. Why? Because they had no axe to grind. The worst people to have are the ones who grew up in a Christian home and have rejected it and are angry, yeah. Bart Ehrman, Ehrman it's the okay. Bart Ehrmans of the world that are angry and they are gonna lead as many people astray as they can. And those are people that have a lot to answer for on Judgment Day because they're like the people in Romans that they do evil and encourage everybody else to do it as well, hmm. right? Because their story has been ruined. They've accepted the cynical skeptical story and it's a shame to say it, but misery loves company. And let's draw everybody into that skepticism. Mm. And the, the worst uh, you know, college professors are the ones that all they care about, deconstruction, Marxism, feminism. They don't care about the work of literature. They want to use the work of literature to advance their agenda, which is often anti the literature. Like they actually hate Milton. They hate Shakespeare. They, so they use them. But when you get a teacher in high school or a professor in college that loves the literature, whose life has been changed by it, who's actually willing to learn at the feet of Dante and Shakespeare and Milton and Homer and Virgil and all these people, those are the people you want because they have been changed and they want to allow you to enter into this world as well. And you know what? That's also true of good seminary professors, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't go to seminary, but if you go to, I mean, if you wanna kill somebody's faith, send them to seminary. Uh, (laughs) Why? Because so many of the seminary professors are people, they may still be believers, but they've come to believe that they understand the Bible inside and out, and they're actually smarter than St. Paul. Hmm. Uh, And so they speak (laughs) condescendingly about St. Paul. And what they do is they take you into the Bible, but at the very same moment, they've cut you off from the Bible, Mm. right? But the real good seminary professor, somebody, you know, somebody, I don't know if Randy teaches courses, but somebody like Randy, who is a storyteller and loves the scriptures and loves the Lord and wants to invite you into that. Hmm. That, That's the difference, right? And so I I had a very good uh, high school. And I remember he said to me, it was really funny. He said, Lou, I only say this to one in 10,000 students, but you would make a fine English professor. (laughs) And so I kind of knew that going in as an undergrad. And I remember the RA, you know, the RA, the resident advisor. And she said, so what are your plans? And I said, well, I'm going to major in English and history. Then I'm going to go on and get a PhD in English and be a professor. And she said, well, you can tell us next week what you really think. I said, no, that's what I'm (laughs) going to do. Now, not everybody knows that in college, Mm -hmm. but I I had that passion Mm -hmm. and I knew that, yeah, this is what I want to do. I want to spend my life studying this but also helping other people to love it and enjoy it and come in and join the party. And most people are excited when they do that. Yeah, And some of them actually will major in English or at least minor in or something like that.
2: And teachers are so important. I, I remember uh, they were kidding me earlier, I was a radio TV film major in, in college, but in my college we had mandatory Bible classes and the best two classes I took were the Survey of Old Testament, a Survey of New Testament, and those teachers just, with that same passion that you
1: have, just brought that alive. And it's, it's amazing. You go to a Christian school, and you know, part of it is because this is the way they were trained, right? And you take an Old and New Testament class, and all they want to talk about is historicism, QE, you know, what is it called, JEPD, all of that. And in other words, they're not really. That's why HBU. Uh, at, at first, I thought, "Oh my gosh, what are you doing?" They they took Old and New Testament and combined it into only one class, and mm-hmm. I thought, "Are you low?" No, they they made one class called the Story of Scripture. There you go, and that's what these students need. And actually, they need it now even more than when we were in school, because mm-hmm. they really don't know the Bible stories at all, yeah. mm-hmm. right? So they need to know those stories and be invited and drawn into it. They don't need all this historical criticism and whatnot. I mean, maybe if you go to seminary, but they don't need that. But that's how so many freshman Old and New Testament classes are taught, Hmm. when they're taught by seminary professors who've turned the Bible into an artifact Mm. and have lost their love for
2: it. -hmm. Yeah. Fortunately, that was my experience. But I I love the fact that they brought them all together, because I'm actually making a point tomorrow or Sunday that— it's one story, right, right? But when we go with the Old Testament and the New yes. Testament, we kind of divide it up, and we'll even put it pit it against one against right. the other, as one is better
1: than the other. But it's it's just that whole story together. And you know, part of the problem is that we persist in using the King James English and calling it Old Testament and New Testament. Yeah. If we called it Old Covenant and New Covenant, Covenant, you know, people might start understanding a little bit because nobody knows what the word testament means. The only time they've ever heard that is my last will and testament. They don't know it means covenant, right? Uh, and so, you know, I, I like to explain that. That's what it means, okay? The old covenant between God and the Jews mediated by the law, but the new covenant between God and all people mediated by the blood of Christ. And again, it's all the same story mm-hmm. moving forward. Just the best example of this is you can explain the entire gospel message to a person without ever leaving the five books of Moses, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it is... The, uh, it, it is the time just before the Exodus, right? And God is going to send the angel of death. And the angel of death is going to come in to Egypt and kill the firstborn of everything, right? Jew and Gentile alike, it will kill the firstborn. Judgment is coming. But God says to the Jews, and it seems to me possible that any Gentile that wanted to believe this could have joined in. We don't know for sure, but uh, at least Nina Foch in the movie, uh, uh, The the Ten Commandments, you know, the the surrogate mother of of, uh, Moses joins, right? But I don't see any reason why that couldn't have happened. But anyway, Mm -hmm. here's the point. If you want to survive the angel of death, you have to go out and find a spotless lamb. Then you have to kill the lamb. You have to take its blood and put it on your lintel, on your doorpost. And when the angel of death comes to your house, it's going to go in the house and say, what a nice Jewish family and go out the window. Is that what it says? No, it says it's going to see the blood and it's going to literally pass over your house mm-hmm. and pass that. If the if the angel of death went into the house, you're finished. At least the firstborn is finished, right? Right. That is the gospel, right? Because we are all like that Jews. We are all under judgment, not just the firstborn, but everybody. And when we come before judgment, when the angel of death comes to us, we are going to be destroyed unless, right? We take the spotless lamb of God because Jesus was sinless. We take his blood. We metaphorically put it on our forehead. And when we come before judgment, will God look at us and say, what a nice Baptist boy. No, he is (laughs) going to see the blood and we will pass out of judgment." So that's the entire, and I don't have time to go, but if you want to understand the entire theology of what we call the atonement, all you have to do is read Isaiah 53, Mm. right? If you asked me to write a poem about what the atonement, the crucifixion, what it means theologically, I couldn't have written anything better than Isaiah 53, Mm. which was written 700 years before Mm -hmm. the crucifixion, Mm -hmm. right? If you wanted an eyewitness account of the crucifixion, read, uh, Psalm 22 that David wrote about a thousand years before crucifixion was even a method. Right. And yet I read that. And it's like a, an eyewitness account of the crucifixion. So they, they need to understand what, I think when you understand that, that, that said the whole Bible is the same story from Genesis to revelation. That's right. I think it opens things up in a new way. It does. It does very much. I mean,
0: I think uh, again, we were, you know, we we're created for a story. In, yeah. in realizing that that that's our story so you were talking about um you know professors igniting passion um in, in people so i read that that you're committed to the concept of the professor as public educator and believe that knowledge must not be walled up in the academy but must be disseminated to all who have ears to hear so what do you mean well, now by you thing? do
1: understand that today Everybody has to have a vision and mission statement. <laughs> Pretty soon, you're going to put that on your child's birth certificate. Okay, I mean, so I thought, all right, if I'm going to come up with, like, let me let me come up with something that's really Good. meaningful, right? And for me, the professor, what the professor is meant to be, is not just some uh, uh, researcher hiding away in a library and kind mm-hmm. of a misanthrope, never talking to people, right? The role of the professor to me is a public educator. It's now obviously my first duty must be to my students. They're paying tuition, and all that sort of But when I finish my work, I need to be taking the treasure that's in academia and bring it out to real, regular people. Mm-hmm. I will tell you, a lot of times, my favorite audience, and this is the audience of the teaching company or the great courses that kind of got me started, mm-hmm. um, is... Doctors, lawyers, businessmen, engineers, maybe they're in their 50s, 60s, 70s, they missed the humanities coming up, hmm. and now they're hungry for mm-hmm. it. And one of the books I wrote, I said, if you want to know why literature is important, don't ask some English major sitting in the quad, right? Ask a 65-year-old lawyer. He will tell you, because it's not till you get older that you realize, for most people, that you realize there are big questions in life, and I need to at least wrestle with them, if not answer mm-hmm. them. And so they're the ones that are... You see, we have this idea that that academia was destroyed by the business school. No, it's not. Business school brings in money, they're good, okay? It's (laughs) destroyed by the social sciences that come in and want to turn us into products of our socioeconomic milieu with no free will, no human dignity, just a product of these forces. That's what's killing academia. Mm. And the humanities were killed because they lust after being the social sciences. And the social science lust after being like the natural sciences rather than being true humanists. People that believe that we're created in God's image, we're fallen, but we're created in God's image. And the art should be something that appeals and lifts us up, you know, plays to what Lincoln called the better angels of our nature, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's what it should be. And so my job, I believe, is to be out there and and invite But let, let me make a good example, okay? Are you also a pastor? No? Yeah, I'm an associate pastor. <laughs> okay, you're both yeah. pastors, okay. Yeah. Now, just think about this, right? If you were on an airplane, right, and you saw somebody and it turned out he was a dentist, right? And you asked him, you know, I've been having a pain here. Can, can you look in my mouth? And if he said, well, no, I'm on vacation, you might not be happy, but you wouldn't think this guy's a jerk, right? I mean, you would understand that. But if you were on a plane and there was a guy next to you with a collar, priest, whatever, pastor, and you just had a death in your family, and you said, could we talk a little bit about that? And if he said, I'm on my vacation, (laughs) you would think this guy's a jerk, right? Mm -hmm. Because to me, teachers are like pastors. First of all, society gives us more leisure. Than most other people, unless you're a Southern Baptist preacher and then they work you to death. But generally, please don't work your preachers to death, okay? Thank you. They give us more free time because the idea is that we are spending more time, whether it's in the Word and prayer, whether it's reading and all. And the idea is that we are becoming fuller people in that sense so that we can share it with other people. Mm-hmm. And it may sound crazy, but if I'm on a plane and somebody asks me a question about Shakespeare or Dante or something, and I'm tired, it doesn't make a difference, I need to talk to you. Mm. Because I am a public person in the way that a preacher is. My job is there, you know, the, the ministry of literature, right? right? Yeah. Uh, the ministry of story, and that's maybe the thing that connects us together. The ministry of story is there, and I need in some ways to, oh now, that's different than somebody saying, can you proofread my paper? You see, that's different. I would probably say, no, I'm on vacation. Okay, but that's different than, can we talk about this? Mm-hmm. I'm wrestling with these issues. You know, why, why does Dante have all those terrible punishments? Well, let's talk about it. Mm-hmm. Right? And so that's what I mean when I say professor as public edu- educator out there. And that's used to be the idea of the educator. You were in there helping society, right? Just like a doctor is helping society by making it more healthy physically you're there to make it more healthy spiritually, to again, invite. And you know what? This is very democratic, right? The, the ones that have turned academia into a you know, complete ivory tower where nobody can understand you, those are almost always the super politically liberal people. It is not; They're not the conservatives, right? What I'm saying is it, the people that are super liberal are the ones who are always saying, we believe in equality, right? That's why we love socialism. They don't believe in equality at all. They're the ones that have taken academia and made it completely cut off from the needs of people. They're the ones that have destroyed it. I mean, this, this is great irony, right? Mm-hmm. They're the ones that speak a jargon that nobody can understand unless you have a PhD in the exact same field, mm-hmm. right? the ones that are really democratic are the ones that are reaching out and inviting people into the story and saying, look, my job is to teach you some good methods for understanding literature so that you can do this on your own. Mm -hmm. If you're a good preacher, I'm going to teach you good methods for understanding how to understand scripture so you can do it on your own. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I'm actually, in a weird way, making myself unnecessary. Now, of course, you always remind them I taught you everything you know, but I didn't teach <laughs> you everything I know. But still, I should be making myself almost defunct in a way mm. because then you will be able to do it on your own because you have that passion inside of you. Mm-hmm. When somebody
2: asks you a question like that, or figured it on the plane or whatever, uh, your passion just responds immediately right. to that, right? And, and it's more because there is a calling. Good.
0: Deep calls out to deep.
1: Yeah. It yep. says in there. Yeah. I was going That's to mention true.
0: that too, about the calling, you know, it's, I, I think what you were referring to also is that this idea that, you know, it, it's not just a job, right? There's a calling associated Ministry. with it, you know, whether it doesn't matter what field you're in, you know, it, there's a passion, there's a calling that you feel that, Hey, this is, um, and I understand the grade and paper thing, but you know, like, Oh, people want, you want to talk about this. So yeah, you were talking earlier about, uh, academia and, and just the, the, the changes. I mean, how have you seen over the years or have you seen students that come in you know a change you know we were talking about earlier before the show the impact of covid but have you seen the hunger desire worldviews? just how have you seen that change over the years with students
1: it is hard i mean i think there's a a sort of rise in cynicism okay it's oh what are you getting out of that narrative what do you mean and and, you know again now everybody wants to control the narrative so it's become politicized, right? And, well, that, that's your truth, but it's not my truth. That, 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 that's troubling, and that, that's mostly the, the fault of uh, public, uh, public education and, and uh, the media and stuff, and Hollywood politicizing everything. But sometimes you can still get to them. What you have to do, to quote C.S. Lewis, is get past the watchful dragons. And one of the best ways to sneak past all that cynicism is get a story that re-engages their original love. Because all kids love stories in the beginning. That you get in there and what you've got to teach them, but you can't tell them this. You have to model it. That a wise person is not a cynical person. Mm. Because that's what we've taught them. That Mm. the more wise and mature and wised up you are, the more you get a little bit suspicious and skeptical and cynical. And we need to show them, no, the true love of anything is going to keep you open and passionate and even give you a kind of innocence. Mm -hmm. I might have shared this one time when I spoke at the church, but one of the most powerful moments in the last battle, that's the last book in the Chronicles of Narnia, it's actually a rather complex book for a child. Uh, (laughs) At one point, there is this this, uh, stable. And when you go through the stable door, you've died and you've gone into Aslan's country. And when the good characters go through the door, they find themselves basically in a restored Garden of Eden. It's beautiful. But there are a group of dwarves that have turned against Narnia and have killed the Narnian horses and have given way to cynicism who say, the dwarves are for the dwarves and care nothing. And when they come on the other side, they think they're in a dark, smelly, pokey little stable. And the good characters try everything they can to convince them. Open up your eyes. Look, there's beauty and wonder, Mm. but they won't see it. All of their senses are messed up. Mm. And then suddenly Aslan appears. And Lucy says, Aslan, isn't there something you can do for these poor dwarves? And then Aslan says the most un-Calvinist line in all of (laughs) C.S. Lewis. My dear, I will show you exactly what I can and cannot do. (laughs) (laughs) And then he he roars and shakes his mane and an entire feast is laid out in front of the dwarves. Mm. And at first they're eating it quick and then suddenly it becomes clear they don't even know what they're eating. They think that they're just eating dirty hay and drinking stable water and then they think someone else got a better and they're fighting and they're smearing all over their faces and they cannot understand it, right? And then Aslan says, You see, you see, I cannot help them. They are in prison, and that prison is only in their mind, Mm -hmm. but it is a real prison, and they are so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. Mm -hmm. Aslan says they've chosen cunning instead of belief, and this is the most destructive thing that happens in in college and university now, is taking students who had an initial love of Dante, Virgil, Milton, whatever it is, and making cynics and skeptics out of them. So that they now think, like the bad seminary student, they now think that they are above this and they've seen through all of it and they're somehow wiser. And that, that pretty much destroys your education, right? Uh, what was it Socrates said? Wisdom begins with wonder. Hmm. Wonder, awe, humility, and that's been lost. Hmm. And and again, once you do that, once you cross over into cynicism, you're no longer going to be changed by what you read. Right. You hmm. might read it. You might even get an A on my test. Hmm. <laughs> but if you have not learned a sense of wonder and awe and humility and a willingness to learn, it's not going to change your belief, and it's not going to change your behavior. It's not hmm. going to do anything for you.
0: Well. Well, wow. you'
1: uh, you're just
0: sharing that story from uh, C.S Lewis, you know his book, I was looking at your book uh, from Achilles to Christ. The quote in the, it's the very beginning of the book. I'm just going to read this from the book. It says, "Many Christians, particularly evangelicals like myself, are prone to claim that the Bible is the ultimate source of truth, but that is not technically true. Christ, not the Bible, is the ultimate source of truth. The Bible is but the most perfect and reliable embodiment of that truth. Which resides in Christ alone. Indeed, in the Gospel of John, Christ tells his disciples that He is the truth. The distinction here is vital, uh, and you go on to talk
1: about how you know truth can be seen right. outside of the, the Scripture. Ultimately, truth is not an idea; truth is a person. Now, I'm a good Baptist. You know, it is the <laughs> Word of God. It's an Aaron. It's inspired. Okay, but we need to understand that sometimes we as Christians, and and more evangelicals and Catholics, we treat the Bible without realizing it like Muslims treat the Quran, okay? Mm -hmm. Muslims believe that the Quran is the dictated word of God. They believe that Muhammad was illiterate. They believe that all Muhammad was was a conduit. If you ever read the Quran, it is written in first person plural from the point of view of God. He is speaking. And there's nothing of Muhammad in there, they claim, right? The word Quran means recitation, right? So the Quran from from Muslim, the Quran is not the inspired word of God. It is the dictated word of God. Too often, Baptists like myself, we we have this idea that the way the Bible was written is Paul closed his eyes and just (laughs) took dictation. No. Now I do have some students that 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 take their test that way. Yeah. They tell close my eyes. God move my pen. Okay. That that's called testing God, not trusting God. Okay. Automatic writing, right? And but that's what Muslims... but we we have this idea. No. The best way to think about the Bible, okay, what do we call the Bible? The Word of God. Mm-hmm. What else do we refer to as the Word of God? Jesus. Jesus. Okay. In the same way that Jesus is or or maybe analogously, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. The Bible is fully inspired by God, but fully written by human beings, Mm -hmm. okay? It is incarnational, right? Mm -hmm. And again, the Bible is the Word of God. But if you want to go, where is truth in its perfect form? Only in Christ. Christ is the absolute fulfillment. See, you need to understand, for Muslims, the full revelation of God is the Quran. They believe when they're reading the Quran, they're reading their salvation. That's why they don't really accept any translation of the Quran, only classical Arabic. That's why there are more Muslims in Indonesia than all the Arabs put together. But all those Indonesians still say all their prayers in Arabic. They probably don't even know what it means, right? Because it's the dictated word of God. But no, our Bible needs to be translated into every language, right? I mean, you know that... that, that evangelicals, we don't have saints, but we actually do have saints. We call them Wycliffe Bible translators. Those are our (laughs) saints, okay? And we almost worship them because they are doing that ultimate thing of incarnating the Word of God, right? So it's important. If we understand that the center of truth is a person, the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, then we'll understand that we can find bits and pieces of that truth all around. Now, only in the Bible do we have a fully reliable source of truth that points directly to Christ. But still, because the center of truth is a person, we can find glimmerings of that truth in all different places. So when I wrote the the Achilles to Christ, I'm finding it in the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, the Greek tragedies. My new book, The Myth-Made Fact, I'm looking directly at the myths. I wrote another book called Heaven and Hell, where I'm looking at stories of heaven and hell. Some of them are biblical, some are not, but in them we can find bits and pieces, glimmerings of truth. Now, we can be so thankful that we have the Bible to measure all that truth. again. we have a touchstone, right. a measuring rod. Mm-hmm. And thank God we have that or we'd be in trouble, right? So everything is leading up to it. But we need to understand that when we study other things, we can find truth. Let me lay something to rest that people sort of misunderstand. There is a place in the book of Acts where Christians burn books. Oh my gosh, wait, Okay. Read that story very carefully, right? Those people are not burning copies of the Iliad or the Odyssey or the Aeneid or Ovid's Metamorphoses. What they are burning is books of spells, okay? Mm -hmm. These are not books in the sense of literature, they are collections of spells voodoo we would say over here and there are most of them are very expensive because they're made with gold you know but that's what they're burning okay that is like burning your your wiccan book or something like that it's not burning literature but we have to be careful because some people misunderstand that when they read that right and they also were making because those books were really expensive that they were destroying. Mm -hmm. okay so we're gonna find bits and pieces of truth everywhere but again only in the bible and then ultimately only in christ do we have something that's fully reliable so let's get down to, okay, the Bible's the only book we need, of course, right? But you know what? Who even needs a high school education? You could survive, <laughs> right? I mean, there's a difference between what we absolutely need and what. If God gives us the uh, ability to go to college, let's use it to grow, to nurture That's it, right. and then God can use that, right? Yeah. Uh, and he does, right? I mean, Moses was, uh, was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Joseph. Was educated in all the wisdom. Daniel was was educated in the wisdom first of the Babylonians and the Persians, and they used that to serve God. Yeah.
4: What you just said while well ago about how there there you know Jesus is our truth, but then we can find truths in different pieces of literature. If I would have heard you say that like seven eight years ago, oh, I, I would have thought what. I I wouldn't have understood that, you know, Mm -hmm. I would have, I would have thought, no, truth is in the Bible and all this is just a bunch of fairy tale, weird stories, mythical. I wouldn't have understood that until I started homeschooling. And then you start reading these books and you're you can't put them down. You're just like, oh my goodness, I see God in this book. I see the love of Jesus in this book. So I, I, I don't know when, I mean, so the people listening. I think that there's people that feel that way, the way I did seven years ago or eight years ago, that how do you take a piece of literature and find truth in it? Is it just something that you just kind of start going through? Like When was that uh aha moment? Like, oh, I'm just not reading a piece of literature. There's truth in here.
1: Now, first of all, to to, to put this all in, in, in scope to understand it, we need to understand that there is a foundational distinction in theology and this is how Calvin's Institutes begin, this is basically how the book of Romans begins, that there's a distinction between general revelation and special revelation. Special revelation is the way God speaks directly to his people through the Old Testament, the New Testament, the prophets, and supremely Christ. Right? And until the coming of Christ, God spoke directly only to the Jews. But he spoke to everybody through what is called general revelation. General revelation is, is the way God speaks to all people through creation, through our conscience, through our reason, and through what C.S. Lewis liked to call the good dreams of the pagans. Hmm. It's there, right? And we need to understand, okay, yes, outside of Christ, there is no salvation, but that doesn't mean here's Christ and here are all the non-Christians dumped together. I mean, people like Chesterton and Lewis understood that there were certain pagans that got closer to the truth than others, Mm -hmm. right? That truth didn't save them, okay? We're not talking about salvific truth. That takes special revelation. Christ has to reveal himself through the Bible or directly, right? There are truths there, and there are, you know, what Dante called them, the virtuous pagans, people like Plato and Aristotle and Cicero and Homer and Virgil, who seem to come closer to the truth. Again, it's not going to save us, but they, they... okay. Dante decided to choose as his guide through hell and most of purgatory, Virgil. Why would you choose a pagan poet who died about 20 years before Christ was born? But they understood that what Virgil represented was the farthest human reason can go hmm. apart from divine revelation. Mm-hmm. Wow. So there, we can go so far like the Magi. right? Their wisdom led them to the Christ child. But if it wasn't for that revelation of Christ, they couldn't have been saved. right? But here's the difference with the, with the Magi. When the Magi got to the Christ child, they could have said, forget this, I'm going home. But they didn't. They recognized that the Christ child was the fulfillment of all of their pagan yearnings. Hmm. And this will happen. Some people who are into all the comic books and all that sort of stuff and and love it and, you know, are moved by it, and you bring them to Christ, some of them will say, well, forget that. What do you mean? There's only one way to God. No, I don't like that. That's too restrictive, right? But others will say, yeah, wow. Now I understand that it wasn't just uh, Iron Man who sacrificed himself at the end of (laughs) Endgame, okay? Mm -hmm. There was a real person who sacrificed, and he wasn't actually a jerk, like Iron Man, okay? <laughs> he was actually a sinless. I mean, so we we'll I say not all people are gonna are gonna follow along, some are gonna reject it, right? Uh, when G, when Paul spoke at the Areopagus and said, "Your own poets have said this. We are his offspring," most of them said, "Forget it. We're out of here." I mean, resurrection? Are you kidding me? The body's bad. I don't. I don't want to come back to my body. But there were a few people that accepted, right? And sometimes there will only be a few people that accept. But folks, the kingdom of God is not about numbers, okay? Right. If we're talking about numbers, Jesus did a really bad job. Mm-hmm. He could only hold on to 12 and one of them betrayed him and the other ones ran away. I mean, come on, this is not about, this is not about quantity. It's about quality, okay? And anyway, if you, have, if you are able to produce three quality disciples and they move on, that's the way to grow the kingdom. But, but it, it's, it's a matter of having eyes to see, to perceive the truth of Christ even in this thing. Here's the way I explained it to my kids, right? When my kids were growing up, some days I would be reading Greek mythology. Some day I'd be telling them Bible stories, right? Well, what's the difference? They said, and this is my metaphor. Mythology and just this literature in general is like a candle. The Bible is like the sun,
3: Hmm. right?
1: Right? And the candle... Now, let's say I'm living in Arkansas. So I have no electricity, right? And (laughs) I'm living in Arkansas and I've got this book and I know it's full of wisdom and I want to read it. And I've just got this small little candle. And by then I'm pouring over, my eyes are tired, and I'm trying to get there. And then suddenly I feel something on my back and I turn around and I open up the curtains and the sun comes in. Now, do I turn to the candle and say, be gone, you demon. I turn to the candle and say, thank you for lighting the way. That's right. Right? Mm. And, and this is it. It lights the way. It, it is, it is the beginning. You know, on the Sistine Chapel by Michelangelo, maybe the greatest, most famous work of Christian art, down the center of the Sistine Chapel, the top of the, 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 the ceiling, are giant frescoes of Genesis 1 to 10. It's creation, fall, and the flood. It's The universal story, right? That's before God narrowed himself down to just the Jewish people, Mm -hmm. right? But around those frescoes are giant paintings of the prophets, giant frescoes of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and all that. But interspersed between them are the Greek and Roman sibyls like the Oracle of Delphi and the Cumaean Sybil who led uh, Aeneas on his journey through the underworld in Aeneid book six. What are they doing? What are those pagan priestesses doing there? The idea is that God used them to prepare the pagan world for the coming of Christ. These Mm -hmm. are the higher pagans Mm -hmm. that are getting us ready. Hmm.
0: That's such a powerful Mm -hmm. perspective um, to have on it because i think a lot of especially today it seems that maybe because people have just forgotten that they they want to dismiss you know mythology and, right. and dismiss that because hey mm-hmm. you know be gone yeah. with the candle right, you know right, right? <laughs> but but realizing how god used those things you know for the sun right you know i think it's so uh it's so powerful so literature has obviously shaped culture stories how much is it do you feel like that the culture is shaping what people are writing or do you feel like that it's people shit you know what i mean or is yeah. it kind of a, a, a no, This a is boomerang danger, right? but you know there
1: was a time not that long ago when artists whatever the movies novels uh, music whatever when artists understood that their job was to offer a counter vision, something for us to live up to. Now, that doesn't mean there's not some pain in there. Right? It's an awful lot of pain in Dostoevsky and stuff, right? Uh, but their understanding was my job is to lift things up, right? Now, this is this idea that the role of the arts is merely to mimic cultural decadence. Well, mm-hmm. Talk about writing yourself a death warrant. What mm-hmm. the heck are we doing? Okay, mm-hmm. that, That's not our job. We're not there to follow everyone into the pit. We're there to offer something more noble. Now again, that doesn't mean all sweetness and light. Mm-hmm. Right? There's an awful lot of death and sorrow and suffering in the Lord of the Rings, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it, this is life too, but on the whole, it is a message of hope, mm-hmm. a message of human potential, but also a message of grace. Mm-hmm. Right? And, mm-hmm. and I, I really feel in some ways the arts are often abdicating their responsibility to do that. Now, the great thing though is if you tell a really great story, you can't help. I mean, you do understand that you know the la- you know there's four Avenger movies, but the last two they're like part one and part two, mm-hmm. where the evil guy is uh, is um, the bad guy snaps his finger and eliminates half the population of the world. There's an awful lot of people in control of things right now. That would do that if they could okay Mm. i mean they're putting masks on us because they're afraid that old people are going to die those are the same people that are fighting for euthanasia don't even get me started on (laughs) they don't even make any sense okay people are the problem they hate people and yet they're turning the whole world upside down and destroying our whole economy and everything else because somebody might die i mean it, it doesn't even make sense but that's what happens when you cut yourself off from the source of life You you have you you become Americans are sick right now at the same moment that America is morbidly obese. The same time Americans have turned exercise into a religion where they've actually made it unhealthy with their diets and their exercise. That's what happens when you lose any golden mean or understanding of Mm -hmm. of anything. So this guy and 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 he's the bad guy, right? The the one that's and at the end. Captain, I mean, Iron Man, who is the most narcissistic of all, actually sacrifice. It all builds up to this sacrifice. It it all builds up to that. So what I'm saying is when you tell a real story with real heroes, you can't twist it too much. Mm -hmm. You know, Shrek trialed real hard to give us an ogre at the end. But even in Shrek, you're going to find some areas of self-sacrifice and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Because the stories tell themselves. It's Mm -hmm. wonderful. Okay, did you see... Star Trek, I'm sorry, Star Wars Episode 3. Was it The Revenge of the Sith? Yeah. Okay. Now, if you watch that movie, you can tell that George Lucas is like, oh, I'm going to be a progressive now, right? And there's a scene where uh, where the bad guy, the evil emperor, says, if you're not for me, you're against me, right? Right. And and of course, he's making fun of George Bush, who said that George W. Bush, right? And he wants to say, right? And he says one point where, well, you know, the, the evil empire is given to absolutist thinking, right? So here is George Lucas wanting to, you know, make a progressive message that all those people that think there's one truth, those absolutists, they're the evil ones. But if you watch really careful, George Lucas cannot do that. Because he's telling a true and beautiful myth. And there's one point where uh, where where Darth Vader, well, he's still Anakin, is talking to the evil emperor, and he's like, Well, isn't that evil? And the evil emperor's like, well, no, good and evil are sort of, you know, uh, on a, on a, on a, you know, they're they they're slippery. So no! It is actually the good guys who are the absolutists. The evil guys are the relativists who think there is no such thing as good and evil so you can do whatever you want. So what I'm saying is, watch it again. Lucas tries so hard to get his, you know, whatever brownie (laughs) points for being progressive, but he can't do it because he's still making, on the whole, a good movie that is telling a real myth and a real story. And again, the good guys are the ones who know there's good and know there's evil. Or how are you supposed to judge who the good guy is if you don't know what's good and what's evil, what's Mm -hmm. right and what's wrong, what's black and white, what's virtuous and vicious? So he tries, but he can't do it. Hmm. And if he had done it, it would have failed
0: Mm -hmm. completely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I heard, I think it was John Eldridge said this, that all stories draw their power from the the real story. By the way, you mentioned
1: a a good book for listeners to read, and it's, it's very short. It's called Epic. It's yes. by John Eldridge, yeah, and yeah. that sort of sums everything up. And he makes all the connections between the Bible, of the Chronicles of Narnia, especially the line "The Witch in the Wardrobe," Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, Gladiator. And if you're into it, I, you'll have to look look online. But he also made a video of it, mm-hmm. like you know, where he's in a big room and he's lecturing on mm-hmm. this idea. And that really is beautiful. If you want to really get us, and he starts, if I remember, by quoting Sam saying to Frodo. I wonder what kind of a story we've landed in. Yep. Right. Yep. And it's really worth it. But the book itself is very short. Uh, but but again, I, I really do love Journey of Desire. Those are those are good yeah, books. And, yeah. But femininity simply disappears. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's what happens. Right. So th- 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 those are the real sexes that hate femininity. So but it all ties into stories, right? If you and you know, thank God they they did the Lord of the Rings faithful, right? Because there was one point where they were going to have uh, Arwen come to the battlefield and kill a hundred people thankfully they didn't do that okay mm-hmm. they they made up for it by having that little elf girl in the hobbit but she was well enough done that didn't bother me too much and she was also <laughs> played by that lovely girl from uh, from lost uh so but 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 again they 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 oh, it's just like i said thank god they were faithful to it in that and pretty much harry potter is faithful to that too harry potter understands masculine and feminine they're very very much masculine and feminine uh, in, in a very strong way, right? Mm-hmm. And appa- I haven't read them all, but in the beginning, the Percy Jackson story started like that, but apparently he's gone over to the dark side and ev- everything is all, mm-hmm. uh, so I'm not even going to read it. But the original books were pretty good. Well, you were talking about
0: uh, classic literature just, just a second ago. Well, I, mean, I mean, we've been talking about it a, a lot the whole time, but you know, I've heard you say that one of the mistakes made by people reading classic literature is failing to ask if it is true. Oh, yeah. So why, okay. why, would, why is that important?
1: When I say, is it true? I don't just mean, is it right or wrong? Is it presenting a true portrait of the human person? Hmm. Is it portraying the truth of what temptation means, of what it means to be human, of what uh, you know, what our uh, role is in life, of, of what our purpose is, of why we're here? Uh, that's what we're asking. Does hmm. it present a true portrait? And now, we also might read it and decide it presents a false portrait. But let's start talking about that, right? You know, there are many that present a false portrait of life.
0: And I think when now you say that, and I think when I watched the the Lord of the Rings, what I was telling you about when I first saw I think that uh, that's in essence of what I was it's like, this is true.
1: It's just true, right?
0: This is true, you know, what's going on. So, um, talking about that idea of truth, you know, you're considered, you know, an authority expert on on c.s lewis how did he become such an intentional or influential voice not in just his world but even the world today i mean what can we learn from him to help us even engage culture something.
1: today c.s lewis when he came to america he never came to america his books came to america he <laughs> was a godsend for actually two different groups of christians okay for those groups of Christians or generic evangelicals who had said, all right, we'll just give over our mind to the university. Just leave us alone to sing our songs and feel our nice feelings and all that sort of stuff, and we won't press too much. Lewis, thank God, said, look, okay, Christianity is a worldview. It is rational. It makes sense. Now, it still takes faith to accept it, But faith doesn't mean believing in something you know isn't true. Mm -hmm. Christianity makes sense. It is a worldview. It it has a paradigm. It has something to say about every area. And it can be defended rationally. You don't have to check your mind at the door when you can become a Christian, right? That it is respectable. And some of the greatest minds in all history were Christians. But he helped another group of people. We might call this group of people the frozen chosen. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> okay people who really studied their systematic theology worship god with their mind but were not yielding their imagination to god right they were the ones that you know again did a great job building the skeleton you know the systematic theology all that great stuff but they were afraid of that pagan literature of all that mythology. They were afraid of fiction, for that matter, right? Forgetting, mm-hmm. of course, that the, the parables are short stories, <laughs> fiction, but we won't go there. Um, but they were just nervous, right? No, it's gonna lead me astray, right? Now, see, what these people don't understand, let me tell a quick story. Many years ago, uh, my parents live in Florida, so I was in Florida, and there was a uh, radio evangelist, a strong man of God, who was telling people, don't read C.S. Lewis, right? So they asked me to talk to him. And I talked to the man. And as I guessed, he had not read any C.S. Lewis. He'd read something he'd read online. That wasn't what shocked me. What shocked me was this. I said, well, well, sir, what have you read by C.S. Lewis? Have you read The Chronicles of Narnia? And he said, ever since I became a believer 40 years ago, I've not read a single work of fiction. Now, Wow. I mean, he hadn't even read the Left Behind series, which, as I said, is probably a good thing, okay? Now, here's the point, and this took me a while to really understand, you know, that's the light bulb we talked about. I suddenly realized that if you ask that, and he was, by the way, he was a strong Christian who led people to Christ. If you asked that man, why don't you read fiction, he would have said, because I'm a Christian. But I believe the real reason he doesn't read fiction is because he's a modernist and he doesn't know it. He has bought into the Enlightenment split, as it's called, that says, here is reason, and here's emotion, logic, intuition, fact, value, history, myth, science, religion. They're completely separate, right? Mm. And it made us lust. Oh, unless we're completely based on facts and all of that sort of stuff, we're no good. Now, I believe that the Bible has a great deal to tell us about science, okay? God created the world. And don't get me talking about theistic evolutionists because those guys get me really mad, okay? But... The Bible is not a scientific textbook, right? It wasn't meant to be a scientific textbook. It teaches us things about the nature of reality. But the trouble is when we try to defend it as a scientific textbook, first of all, we're going to lose because that's not what it was meant to be. Mm-hmm. Never was meant to be that, mm-hmm. okay? So we need to understand that if we're fully going to understand the Bible, we need to understand historical truth, but we also need to understand literature because the majority of the Bible is written in either poetry or or stories or whatnot, okay? Fictional things. That doesn't mean they're not true. See, we've bought into this, this artificial split that says it's either completely true or a myth. Whereas Chesterton and Lewis and Tolkien, they saw Christianity as a true myth. Why? Because, okay, Jesus is more than all those mythical people because Jesus is true. It actually happened in real time and space under Pontius Pilate. But, Jesus is more than a myth but he's not less than a myth. In other words Jesus while being completely true also speaks to that part of us that yearns and desires for story mm. and myth mm. and to be part of it. Mm. And we need to understand that God fulfills that as well. Mm. Right? Because it's terrible. People may I've I've got to leave I have to leave the church because there's no wonder there. There's no imagination. There's no beauty there, right? Mm-hmm. right. As, as one, of, one of our former provosts said, you know, I've often gone to Baptist schools to give a lecture on beauty. And I give that lecture in one of the ugliest buildings I've ever been in. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. So beauty. Mm-hmm. And again, this church here where I'm speaking actually has commissioned a number of works. You have a new one to show me after this? I guess so. Well, yeah, yeah, you probably have <laughs> yeah. some new ones, okay? But this is beautiful. Right? Yeah,
0: I, uh, you're talking about story, I, I think is in john one he, you know uh, jesus came to reveal the father and
1: uh-huh.
0: and if, if i'm correct on this i could be wrong uh, but uh, if it's this verse the, the it, really what it's saying the word for reveal elsewhere in the scripture that word is used to when someone's telling a story
1: okay john 1 yes no one has seen god at any time the only mm-hmm. begotten son of god which is in the bosom of the father has explained him but you could also say revealed, or you really could say narrated him. That's what I'm yeah. getting at. That, yeah. that is a, a, a very possible uh, translation. When I read word. that, I was like, "That's yeah. amazing! Like, wow!" You know, He's told. Yeah. he is the, maybe Jesus is the story. Yeah, yeah, you know? um, it's yeah. he is that part of the Trinity that reveals. Yeah, right from yeah. the beginning, he is yeah. light, and then there is no darkness. I mean, it, it's uh, again, you know, one, one of the one of the most famous, but also hard to watch movies about the life of Christ is called "The Greatest Story Ever Told." You ever see that? Mm-hmm. It's beautiful, but it's like it's like looking at one of those coffee books, just <laughs> one beautiful thing after another with no life in it. But anyway. <laughs> so,
0: um, you know, how much of the Greek world has influenced our Western civilization? Yeah. civilization? And do you think that people have forgotten about that today? You
1: know, we, we've forgotten that, you know, a democracy is only as good as its citizens. Hmm. Right? You know, it, it, Athens created democracy, right? Greece, but particularly Athens. But they fell prey to, okay, they basically fell prey to the two things that kill democracy. And generally speaking, one is a little bit more to the right and one's a little bit more to the left, so I can be balanced here, okay? One of the things that destroys democracy is the idea of sort of my country right or wrong, a super kind of patriotism that's anti-immigrant, anti-everything, okay? The other one though is the desire for radical egalitarianism to make everybody the same. That destroys everything. This yeah. is what this is what is going to kill our country, right? Everybody's got to be the same. Crush it together. And we know that's nonsense, right? You know, would you go to the symphony if it was based on egalitarian <laughs> principles, right? Would you spend all that money for a year subscription if they took anybody off the street who thought they could play a flute, right? <laughs> would you buy a season ticket for a football team that was based on egalitarian? Oh, wait a minute. That would be the Houston Texans, actually. Oh, anyway, boy. sorry. But the uh, <laughs> but, anyway, <sure. laughs> but but anyway, the the what we've got to learn is what they did right and what they did wrong. Okay, what they did right is they tried to create a system that invited people in. It's, you know, democracy means rule by the people or a republic that that try to understand the need. But I'm a Greek and I wish I could say that all the founding fathers learned everything from Greece, but sometimes the Greeks were the bad example, right? It was the Roman Republic, right? The Roman Republic had a representational democracy where you hire people, hire people, you elect people to represent you. So they can deliberate, right? The, the Greek democracy for a while was a direct democracy. It it, okay, imagine if our entire democracy was run the same way that we run jury duty, because that's how they did it. It was done <laughs> by selection rather than election. Now, it worked for a while because they lived up to their ideals of justice and courage. But when things started to go bad, they just forgot about their values and their absolute standards, and when there was nothing to hold them, right? There mm-hmm. weren't checks and balances. And the Romans did it, but they did a little bit better because they found a way to have basically what we call three branches of government that balance themselves back and forth. But again, the, the Greeks sort of begin it all by holding up a standard that we can live to and inventing a kind of education that would raise democratically-minded people. Mm. But again, we what's happened is that public education has been hijacked by progressives, and this has been going on for 100 years, who don't believe in those standards anymore. They've thrown out that sense of what it means to be good and true and noble and living up to a standard. Mm. Uh, but again, the, the Greeks were also one of the first people that really thought about thinking. They didn't just think, they thought about thinking. Isn't this interesting? And that kind of got them looking at that and asking the questions, what does it mean to be mortal? What does it mean to be human? Uh, It gave us heroes, and the young people, they used to grow up wanting to be like the heroes of Epic, Hmm. just like our kids used to grow up wanting to be good people, the good astronauts and the good, uh, you know, whatever, uh, uh, athletes. But now, who are their role models? Okay. Who are their role models now? Actors that have no moral center. uh, Celebrities that have no moral center. Or athletes that no longer have a moral center. Right? There was a time when they could actually look up to baseball players Mm -hmm. as embodying, you know, goodness and truth and beauty. But we've lost that because in the same way that the arts have abdicated their responsibility to hold up a higher standard, our celebrities have also abdicated their responsibility to hold up a higher standard. And they can do virtue signaling, but it's not a higher standard. So how do we tell a different story? Wow, oh, that, that's it. We have got to show them, that, first of all, we got to show them that the real magic is in Christianity. Hmm. There is no greater magic than the belief that God became mad, man while still being God. There's no greater magic than the incarnation. Hmm. Okay, It's what every myth is about but it actually happened in real time and space, mm-hmm. right? So we we, we need to, to train them in that. Our story has to be one that balances justice and mercy, holiness and forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And we go from one extreme to the other. Mm-hmm. Right? We, we, you know, it, it, I guess it used to be that we probably overdid the condemnation part, but mm-hmm. we've gone to the other extreme. Mm-hmm. And th- the trouble is that the people who only want to hear about forgiveness and all of that... They are themselves actually the most judgmental people in the world mm-hmm. and want to cancel everybody else that doesn't do that. So, so it's not... We, we, we've we lost the proper balance between the two. Wow. You, you want to hear... Okay, this is not in the movie, so I'll tell you this. Okay, <laughs> if you've seen the movie of Lord of the Rings, uh, Denethor sort of goes crazy and is about to set himself and his son on fire when Faramir is actually not dead, right? Now, in the movie... There is a a guard of Gondor named Baragond, right? And he has got to make a decision. If he follows the law that's being laid down by Denethor, who is the steward, right? Faramir is going to die. If he resists it, he may have to fight against his liege lord. And he has got to make an incredibly difficult moral choice. And in the end, he saves the life of Faramir, but has to kill some of the guard to do it. And at the end, when the king returns, Aragorn returns, he must judge Baragond. What is he going to do? How is he going to balance mercy and justice? Mm. He says, because you have you know, violated your oath and killed people in Minas Tirith, Gondor, you have to leave this city. But you will go with Faramir to Athilion. He's going to be the new captain of this area, and you will be his captain, for you gave everything out of love for your Lord and did it properly. And then he's like, "Oh my gosh!" He's like, in, in awe of this balance of justice and mercy and understanding. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, can we powerful. understand that? Can we? Understand and that's the cross, the right? I get, yeah, the cross. I guess. Yeah, that's true. Where it happens, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. The, ul- the ultimate justice and the ultimate mercy is when God, out of love, lays the wrath on His Son. Mm. Right? And and we've kind of forgotten how to do that.
0: Well, some of our listeners, you know, might not have grown up reading literature, you know, um, but maybe even listen to this podcast, either number one, want to enroll
1: in HBU into one of your classes
0: or just want to pick up, you know, w- where would you say they should start? The, the,
1: the best thing is good, well, for, for me, just go to Amazon.com and type in Luis Marcos, M-A-R-K-O-S, <laughs> and you'll have all of, you know, all my books. And, but also if you go to YouTube and type in Luis Marcos, you'll find my YouTube channel and you can listen there. Right? Okay. Uh, and and uh, I mean, come to HBU. I mean, it's great stuff, okay? and I, mean, I give a lot of speeches and things like that. Uh, but I mean, a good place to start, I mean, first of all, just start with the, actually read the Lord of the Rings and the Chronicles of Narnia, but read them as an adult because the entire tradition is in those books. But I would encourage you, go back and read the Iliad and the Odyssey. You've got to read that. Read some of the Greek tragedies. Oedipus and Antigone is a good place to start. Read Virgil's Aeneid. That's a little bit harder, uh, but read that. You need to read that. Mm-hmm. Uh, read Dante's Inferno. That's not that difficult. Now, purgatory and paradise are a lot more difficult. If you if you got the steam going, someday you should read the whole thing, okay? Milton's Paradise is a little bit harder, but if you read it out loud, slowly to yourself, you'll find it makes a lot more sense and as you do that. Uh Canterbury Tales, try to read some Shakespeare. Uh start with a Midsummer's Night Dream. That's wonderful. Read Hamlet. Read uh, Julius Caesar is a good read. Romeo and Juliet. Uh read some of that. Um read uh, you know some uh if you want some poetry, Wordsworth, Coleridge, Byron, Shelley Keats, uh Tennyson. Uh, I mean there's so many great uh you know writers to dig into. Uh and if you want to read a novel, you can read uh, Pride and Prejudice, uh Crime and Punishment that's kind of hard but it's powerful work. Uh you can read The Great Gatsby is very accessible. Uh, uh uh Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens I've always found very accessible. Uh but you know get in there and don't be afraid. Don't be intimidated. Go there and read it and try to lose yourself in it. I like that lose yourself. So so with families with
0: young kids, you know maybe you know just the busyness or trying to do things. I mean, any advice for
1: parents? Okay. You got to read the Chronicles in order to your kids. Start with the Hobbit. If they're really young, the Lord of the Rings is a little bit difficult, but what I wouldn't, what I raise my kids on, go on amazon.com and look for the red fairy book and the blue fairy book. It's it's published by, uh, by uh, Dover Press. So you can just go to Dover Press. Dover Press is everybody's favorite because they publish facsimile editions of old books that if you bought them when they came out would have been hundreds of dollars You get it for 12 bucks. There's the red fairy book and the blue fairy book and then there's a whole bunch of others. Green, yellow, lavender, all sorts of things. But start with the blue and red. They're by Andrew Lang and they are the best retellings of the old fairy tales and myths and they're beautifully illustrated with line drawings. And the red and, fa- and, the red and blue have the best stories and the most pictures. So start with that. And then from there move on. Those are great things uh, to read to your kids. Another one I would encourage, because uh, it's not as well known in America, is Wind in the Willows. Every British kid has read that, but a lot of Americans don't know Wind in the Willows. It's very good. Uh, Alice in Wonderland, uh, Winnie the Pooh. They certainly should know Winnie the Pooh. Um, I mean, they're just great things that you can read to them. And, and again, invite them into this. And and you know, stop as you read and let them ask questions. Now, the other thing I would encourage you to do Sometimes read out loud to them, but other times, like with the Bible, get to know the story yourself and then tell them the story in your own words. They love that. Do that every so often. Learn the myth and just read. It. You know, learn like the basic story of of Odysseus and just tell it to. Them. Don't tell them the story of Oedipus. That will terrify them. But <laughs> tell them the Odyssey. I mean, it really helps, I think. Uh, and you know, and when you read out loud. Be a good actor, okay? Do voices. You don't have to be perfect. The kids will love it. (laughs) And as you're reading out loud, stop every so often and ask them questions, right? If you have a longer story, leave them hanging. Like I used to always say, and now, if you want to understand, if you want to find out whether the prince saves the princess you'll have to come back tomorrow. They did this before. Ah! No, no, come on. You, you need to keep them going and keep them interested. And and let them ask questions. Stop every so often and ask them questions. I would always stop and look at the picture together with them mm-hmm. and let them point to details, especially if it's a good one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, in other words, make it a dialogue. Make them involved. Get, the, you know, get them sitting in the bed and all excited and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and, and, uh, and here's something, I'm so glad I did this. I, I don't know... I think it was because I got so involved with homeschoolers. You see, when I was a kid, my parents, you know, my mom read to me, but once I was able to read, she didn't read to me, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I'm so glad that in time I read, no. And so I kept reading to the kids until they were teenagers. Kids love that, right? Mm -hmm. It was good. And a lot of classical Christian schools... In the ninth graders, they'll still read to them because it, it, it's, it's a discipline, it's, it's something you learn from. But mm. don't do that, get you and you know. And so, one of the things I took my kids to because I loved it was the Martian Chronicles by Ray Bradbury. We went through all those stories and talked about them and things like that. Uh, and and uh, and you know, now God help them. I know a lot of homeschool parents that have read the entire Lord of the Rings to their kids. That's an undertaking, <laughs> but if you can do that, that's well worth it. Mm. I, but the Narnia Chronicles are shorter, you can read them and all that, uh, and also keep stories alive when you go on a long car trip with your kids. Hmm. Listen to stories. Hmm. All the Chronicles of Narnia have been read out loud by really good actors like uh, like uh, Ken Branagh, Patrick Stewart, uh, Michael York. But also, I would really encourage you, This I raised my kids on this, if you're going on a long journey by Focus on the Family has turned all the Chronicles of Narnia into radio plays. Hmm. They've got a lot of the other ones too. But Get those, and when when I used to go on car, long car trips, whenever Aslan appeared, the car got silent. Everything. you know, <laughs> mm. it, it just and and also the BBC did a thirteen part radio play version of the uh, Lord of the Rings. That's brilliant. Mm. I, I've listened to them again and again. So get those and focus on the family. They're, they've done other books. You know, they did the Christmas Carol. They've even got a Ben Hur. Uh, they've got a Les Mis, a shorter version, of Les Miserables. A few of them that I bought. Uh, they've got they've got uh, at the back of the North Wind by George MacDonald. But, you know, the reading, but when they're read out loud, I mean, they're, they're, they're acted. I mean, you know, they've got music and different actors and special effects sounds and all wonderful stuff. One thing I've become
2: aware of is, I guess, the intentionality of parents and particularly I hear it from you, but of dads. Of yes. How much have, have dads kind of advocated that role? They have. I've been reading um Biographies on the presidents of oh, the United okay. States, and so it was interesting that, that I saw both with uh, John Adams and John Quincy Adams in their writings. They are adamant on their to their kids about you need to be reading this right now, and and there are all those classics that you're talking about. They wanted to make sure that they had the, this foundation in the in the Greek and Roman classics, as you were, as oh, you discussed. I remember
1: somebody showed me that he wrote a letter to his son saying, "If you want to understand everything about political science." You must read Thucydides, the Peloponnesian War. There you go. If possible, in the original Greek, which yeah. is some of the. Yeah. I can't remember, but somebody told me the kid was like ten when he sent him the letter. Yeah, they and were. Pretty, just, he's pretty rough. Yeah. Up. Oh my gosh! I mean, he, he and, and he, you know, he, he man, what what a, what an education he had. Yeah. Of course, John go,
2: Adams looked down on George Washington, you know, because he said
1: Washington he never studied that stuff. I never studied, You yeah, see, that's it. I mean, farm boy. The farm, right, the farm boy. You know, but 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 you but you're right. Dad has to show them the importance. Right. Right? Yeah. And you need to keep a dialogue going. on. And you know what? If they're reading the Odyssey, bring up the Odyssey at the dinner table. Bring it yeah. into the conversation. What it means? See, as I tell my students, WWJD? What would Jesus do? That's good. But I also want them to ask, What would Achilles do? What would Odysseus do? Right? Mm, what, you know, what, what would Frodo do? Mm-hmm. This is the sort of stuff. Right? I mean, because you're, they're getting into it.
2: Yeah, and with with i think john quincy adams what thrilled him the most was when his son would have those discussions with him about when they were able to discuss those things together
1: i remember driving and my my kids in the back seat are talking about plato or something and it's just oh this is like heaven this is beautiful (laughs) we started
4: reading the hobbit because mine are young and we're like oh, it's time for our second breakfast you know because oh, <laughs> breakfast or your feet look like bilbo's oh that's great Oh, see that's great it, it's give it gives i think a family a common language yes. mm-hmm. and it gives you this underpinning this story that i think makes your family it, it's it's kind of this legacy that you're creating through literature and it's just really neat
1: my kids and i literally talk to each other in lord of the rings both mm-hmm. the novel and the movie because right? I mean, we, yeah. we've done so many, we've hosted so many movie marathons watching the whole thing. And and, 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 and Narnia too. We could we speak to each other in that language. And it's, it's very, very powerful. Mm. You know, and, and uh, there's even consolation there. There's, there's challenges there and things like that. And uh, yeah, it's, it's just something.
0: So uh, this has been fantastic uh, visiting with you today and just a lot of uh, great information. But coming up in June... There's going to be opportunity for people um, right. to hear you speak, and that's actually going to be in June, June 27th on a Sunday um, at uh, at Siena Ranch. If you want more information about that, um, how you can uh, be a part on June 27th the Sunday evening, um, you can go to our website, SantaRanch.org, and and look and, and find out information um, uh, about that. But that's going to be coming on June um, June 27th. Uh, check that out. And what are we doing? Pilgrim's Progress. Right. Was that Pilgrim's
1: Progress? Right. Pilgrim's yeah.
0: Progress. If then- you have not read Pilgrim's Progress, Get you should read it. it. Yeah. Um, but uh, Dr. Marcos is going to talk about that on that on that Sunday, Sunday evening. It's
1: a great book. It is. They even have one for kids. There's all sorts yeah. of versions in easier English yeah. and whatnot. It was the you know second big bestseller after the Bible for a couple hundred years. I mean, mm-hmm. it's amazing. Yeah,
2: and then in July we're going to have with be tape letters, cake cake right? letters. And then
1: in August will be uh, the Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. So exciting so summer! Yeah, if yeah. you
0: you know, not sure if you got a trip planned for the summer or not, but you know, the last Sunday night of June, July, and August. Well, thank you again so much uh, for being part of the show. It's been it's been great, and I uh, hope you guys enjoyed the show. And be sure to subscribe to get all the latest content. And y'all take care. God bless.